I have a dear pastor friend. He told me a story a few months back. He told me this first about the first 12 years he had ministry. And uh, the first several years of his ministry, he was involved in planning a church in a metropolitan area in our country. And things had gone really well, had gone so well that a church planning agency had recruited him uh, to work uh, a different job on the other side of the country for them. Uh, this church planning agency had done a, a great job recruiting church planners, uh, but they were having a really hard time training church planners. They would be successful. The, the, the churches would, uh, church plants would get off the ground and get started. Everything would be going great. And then in multiple instances, uh, the church planning pastor committed suicide. Terribly, terribly sad. And so my friend was hired to come in and think about how do we train pastors going forward uh, so tragic instances like this become uh, far less frequent and hopefully even non-existent. So he moves to the other side of the country. He um, is thinking through how to uh, develop church planners, and he kind of comes up with a, a six-part system. There are going to be six pillars to this uh, development of church planners. Uh, first pillar is their spiritual formation. The second one is their marriage and family. The third one is their self-care. The fourth one is leadership. The fifth, cultural intelligence. The sixth one, emotional intelligence. He was there just a little while. He had those six things lined up. He felt really good about moving forward with it and implementing it uh, across the organization. But he had to leave. And he had to leave because the person he was working with uh, was a tyrant. He's very egotistical. My friend couldn't handle it anymore. So he moved back across the country to the uh, place where he planted a church. And he, didn't, he didn't have a job. And so while he was there, because he had been there for several years, he knew a lot, several pastors. And he went to one of them and said, man, I really need you to care for me. I'm hurting after this kind of failed ministry gig. And the pastor friend said, oh, man, I'd love to. Uh, but I, I got to ask you a question. Have you thought about seeing a counselor? And my friend uh, very quickly said, no, I haven't thought about it. I'm not going to. So his pastor friend said, okay. Next time he saw him, he said, hey, I, I know you said you went to see a counselor, but what about a leadership coach? Would you be up for seeing a leadership coach? He said, sure, give me his name and number. So my friend calls the leadership coach, makes an appointment with him, and he begins thinking, hey, since this guy's a leadership coach, maybe he can give me some feedback on the program that I want to put forward for church planners. I mean, he'll know a thing or two. So he walks in the leadership coach's office, sits down, and he says, I've got uh, two things to tell you. The first thing I gotta tell you is, I'm not going to talk about my feelings. Number two, I got to tell you about this, this church planner development program that I, I want to set out. So he lays out those six things I just listed a minute ago. Leadership coach looks back at him and he said, uh, man, that sounds great. I think pastors would really benefit from zeroing in on those six things. But you know that if you do those six things, you're going to have to talk about your feelings. And you said you don't talk about feelings and you're the one who's going to lead this. My friend said he hung his head and he said he can't remember how many hours he had been crying. See, my friend's really bright. He knows his Bible backwards and forwards. My friend's really well-mannered. He's very kind. His behavior's exemplary. 
But there was something missing for my friend, something that leadership coach highlighted, and that was the inner life, his emotions. He didn't know how to access those. He didn't know he had them. He didn't know how to deal with them. And would that describe you? You know, as um, we think about all that's going on in our country, you have COVID, uh, you've got the racial tension, and it really calls for us to access a full range of human experience. It's kind of like what uh, another pastor I heard about, uh, another pastor I heard about was approached by someone who didn't know anything about the Bible and said, hey, I don't know anything about the Bible, where should I start? And the pastor said the Psalms. And he said the reason you should start in the Psalms is that it has such an acute range of human experience that you'll think that the Psalms were written by your therapist. I think that's what's going to happen for us as we look through the Psalter these next several weeks. And so we're going to start at the beginning of the Psalter. Uh, Psalm chapter 1. Uh, Psalm chapter 1 is fundamental and basic to the book. If you get chapter 1, you get the book of Psalms. If you miss chapter 1, you miss the Psalms. So let's read it together. Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff, that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So what we see there in Psalm 1 is that there's three movements. Verses 1 and 2 outline how to be happy. Verses 3 and 4 talk about what happiness looks like. And chapters, or verses 5 and 6 give us motivation towards happiness. So verses 1 and 2. You'll see the very first word in the psalm is blessed. Another word you could use instead of blessed in that translation is happy. Happy. We have a strange relationship with happiness, don't we? I mean, we start out as children. We think that life is happy. Uh, happiness is something that we think is just natural when we're children. But then as we grow older, we find out that happiness is not as easy as we thought. And maybe we even come to the conclusion that happiness is impossible. But the Bible's got a different view. The Bible says that happiness is neither natural nor is it impossible, but happiness is achievable. So on the one hand, we shouldn't be naive about the pain in the world. But on the other hand, we shouldn't have such a bleak view of the world that we think happiness is impossible. But if happiness is achievable, then why do so few people have it? Well, it's right there in verses 1 and 2. They have the wrong inputs. The psalmist describes these inputs in a don't do this, do that kind of way. Verse 1 the psalmist describes a happy person as one who does not keep poor company. And in verse 1, the poor company just escalates, doesn't it? Look at that poor company. Verse, the first verb is to walk. So you just pass through the company, poor company. The next one is stand. That means you 
pause in the in, in, with poor company. And the next one is you take a settled position of sitting. That's the verb used. And so there's a progression. There's a trajectory. And verse one says, don't have poor company. That's what it takes to be happy. Then there's a second piece, and it's in the positive. The input is to delight in the law of the Lord. Now we've got to find what that means. What is uh, the law of the Lord, and what does it mean to meditate on it day and night? So the law of the Lord uh, does not mean Old Testament legal regulations. It means that in other parts of the Old Testament, but it doesn't mean it here. What it means frequently both here and in the rest of the Psalms is that it really is shorthand for the message of the Bible. In the message of the Bible, you could call the gospel. And the gospel is the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So what this is really saying in the law of the Lord is that you are to make the gospel the centerpiece of your life. And when it says day and night, it doesn't mean that you have the Bible in your lap all the time. It just means that the gospel becomes the thing that you run. It's the grid that you run everything in your life through. It's a gospel lens that you put on everything. And so you know that when feelings come, you know how to, what to do with them. See, when it comes to feelings, we either take a stoic view of our feelings and we take a stoic view, we suppress them, they're unwelcome, we want to get back to a rational view of life, or we see our feelings as sacred. And when you see your feelings as sacred, sacred, you think that venting your emotion isn't just a good thing, you think it's a necessary thing. Your feelings become the basis of your reality. Your feelings become something that cannot be critiqued. That's what it means to make your feelings sacred. But the Bible says something different. It says that feelings can be good or bad. And whether they're good or bad doesn't depend on the feeling itself. It depends on the inputs of the person experiencing that feeling. For instance, not all anger is good, but anger, some anger, is good, especially if it's coming from someone who's delighting in the law of the Lord day and night. That's why the gospel becomes absolutely critical. If you want to be happy, you must neglect ungodly company, and you must make the gospel the centerpiece of your life. That's how you are happy. But what does it look like? If you were to forsake poor company and you were to make the gospel centerpiece of your life, what might your life look like in 3D? Well, that's what verses 3 and 4 do for us. Verses 3 and 4 give us two images. One's of, tr of a tree. The other is of chaff. And the tree is described as bearing fruit in season. The, the tree is described as having leaves that don't wither. The tree is described as something that always prospers. But there's a secret for this tree being so healthy. Do you see it? It's because there's this source and it's a source of water and beneath the tree beneath the soil there's this unseen root system that's drawing nourishment from a stream that makes the tree healthy and so this unseen root system with its ever-present source of nourishment that's what allows this tree to be so durable 
so consistent and so sturdy. But then there's the chaff. Chaff, uh, they're just husks of corn. They're very light, they're thin, they're worthless, and they'll blow away with any amount of wind. So it's a stark contrast, the tree and the chaff, isn't it? They're totally different. See, if you're like the chaff, you will let your circumstances dictate your feelings. If the winds of your circumstances blow, then you just let your feelings blow right along with your circumstances. But if you're like the tree, you know that there's different seasons. Did you notice that in reading the psalm at the beginning? That it bears its fruit in season. This tree doesn't bear fruit 12 months a year. It just bears its fruit in season. This tree has to endure a winter. Something that's unpleasant, something that's very difficult. So fruitful season's pleasant, the winter's difficult. And that sure does sound like our life, doesn't it? What the psalmist is doing here is really giving validity to all sorts of feelings, but it all depends on whether you're rooted in a tree that's planted by streams of water or whether you're the chaff. It all depends on whether you delight in the law of the Lord. So it, you want to know what this life looks like. It looks sturdy. It looks consistent and it looks durable. That's what a life looks like that delights in the law of the Lord. Isn't that the kind of life you want? <laughs> it's the kind that I want. And then lastly, we get some motivation. Some motivation for our happiness. There's this unambiguous language in the psalm, and it continues. Verses 1 and 2, you can be happy or wicked. Verses 3 or 4, you can be tree or chaff. And in verses 5 and 6, you can be like the wicked, and you don't have fellowship with God, you don't have fellowship with his people, and you will perish. That's divine judgment. Or the Lord can know your way. You can be known and loved by the Lord. It's a sharp contrast. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral ground. And the choice is pretty dire because it means you either experience divine blessing or divine judgment. How's the word judgment land on you, especially in relation to God? It sounds harsh, doesn't it? I think it could, but this isn't what God wants for you especially as it's laid out in Psalm 1. Think about, here's all that God wants for you in Psalm 1. He wants you to be happy. It's God's will for you to be happy. Have you ever thought that? Now it's happy as he defines it, but he wants you to be happy. Second thing he says is that he wants you to be stable and mature like a tree planted by streams of water. He's given you the law of the Lord. He's given you the gospel. He's revealed what he's like in Jesus in the scriptures, and he wants you to delight in them. And verse 6 says that he wants to know you and keep you in his care. But judgment's still in there. And the reason the Bible highlights judgment is because it does give us some motivation, doesn't it? See, what the warning of future judgment does is that it sneaks backward from the future into our present lives. And it can, in a healthy way, scare us into repentance. 
what this text does, hopefully, is that it, 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 it scares you off your scoffer's seat and you begin making the gospel the foundation of your life. If you make the gospel the foundation of your life, it's a huge transition. It's a transition from thinking that, um, that God owes you to you owe God. See, when God owes you, here's how your life works. If when things go good and you feel like you've been living up to your end of the bargain, then you deserve the good things coming to you. Maybe it's the other way. Maybe if it's life's going bad, you feel like you've not lived up to your end of the bargain. And so life's miserable. You deserved it. But both ways, it leads to pride when God owes you. The other way it could go is that things are going good in your life. You feel like you've done really bad. So you just feel like you've gotten lucky. That God's kind of blessed you out of nowhere. But it's easy to see how that's not going to happen again. Leaves you feeling really insecure when God owes you. Or when things go bad, you feel like you've been doing really good. Guess what happens? You get angry. But what if God doesn't owe you? What if you're the one who owes God? See, the only thing that God really owes you is judgment. We're sinners. We deserve God's displeasure. But God, who is rich in mercy, abounding in steadfast love, he pours out his love on us in his son by sending his son to live the life that we should have lived, die the death that we should have died, raise again to give us his life and ascends on high into heaven and rules the world. And he can rule our hearts. And we don't deserve any of that. So now we owe God. Now we don't owe God because we don't have a firm standing with him. We have a very firm standing with him. We've been adopted through our brother Jesus into his family. And so now when we owe God, we just owe him our grateful hearts for all he's done for us. And when that becomes deep in our souls, we become less and less like chaff and more and more like a tree. We can be happy no matter what because we know we're loved by Jesus. We see that we owe God not to pay back for anything. We owe him joyful hearts. This is how gracious he's been to us. Let's pray. Father, we want to plant ourselves by the gospel uh, Lord, we don't want to be dictated by our circumstances. We want our feelings to flow from the gospel. And so, Lord, I pray that in the coming weeks you would show us this full range uh, of how we respond to you in faith. Oh, Lord, we need your help. In Christ's name, amen.